quick announcement. We're going to play the golf tournament today. Well, I am a morning person. Boy, I wake up with a song in my heart and a dance in my step, and my wife hates me for that. <laughs> she can't get up until noontime. No, no, she can get up a lot earlier than that. She's getting better at it. I like to get up real early, go to bed real late, but I crash in the middle of the day. Right around between 12 and 2. If you see me dozing at the lunch table, that's why. Wow. My blood sugar goes like that. Are we going to need that? Someone good? Oh, it's on. Okay. This is for uh, Roger. Okay. Or whoever. Um, boy, it was good to hear that uh, little girl take notes. <laughs> boy, that, that really makes the day. My mother always, before I preach at Dad's church, uh, Mother always uh, says to me, Keep it simple, Charles. Keep it simple. <laughs> I said, Mom, I don't have to now. Now that I got a degree, I know it can be confusing. It doesn't, have, doesn't even have to make sense. And people will say, Ah, he's a doctor. After all, who cares? Did we pray yet? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. We thank you that you watch over us and we thank you for the Lordship of Christ and that he has constituted this world, that also he rules over us. Especially we ask for your rule to be made known in our presence. Bless us as we give heed to your word. Keep safety uh, over us, Lord. Watch over the children especially. And give us a good day in your word and fellowship. For Jesus' sake, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 again. Acts chapter 5. Here is that one verse. Verse 28 and 29. Uh, let, let me remind you again. This is a study time where you can ask questions. We can have a, a dialogue of sorts that goes on now. Don't think that this is... A, when I give a lecture, it's also a dialogue. And also... Uh, those study questions that you uh, are discussing, discussion questions, uh, I basically developed them. I don't have answers for all of them either. They're, they're discussion questions. It's sometimes there's some good answers. Sometimes uh, they may not have any answers. It's something to think about. But if you want to bring those up at this time, if you want to bring them up, we can talk about those things as well. Uh, and there are some times when uh, it may be more profitable to deal with that. Uh, I mean, I have my schedule all set down, messages ready to go, but I'm willing to chuck those things and deal with things that you're interested in, too. So don't hesitate to, to raise your hand and to say, what did you mean by that, and so forth. Uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, we read, uh, I think this is yesterday as well, verse 28 and 29. And the high priest asked them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man. Now that to me is the best text on your rights. So we want to talk about rights today, human rights. Uh, I don't primarily want to deal with civil rights, that is, from a legal standpoint. Since I'm not a lawyer, I can't give you a whole lot of advice legally. Um, perhaps some of you could give better legal advice. We're dealing with uh, human rights from a moral perspective, biblical rights. This particular issue has been extremely fascinating for me. A few years ago, I did a series on slavery in the Bible, and I was fascinated with it. You know, the Bible's not opposed to slavery as such. But don't equate the slavery that the Bible's not necessarily opposed to with the slavery that went on in the United States. There's no equation between the two. So to say that, that the Bible's not opposed to slavery as such, is not to say that therefore the Bible wasn't, wasn't opposed to the slavery that we experienced 100 years ago. 
And so I did a, a series on that, and so I had to do a, uh, some research and study on slavery and the anti-slave movement, the history of it, the philosophy of it. I found a series of messages against uh, that slavery, uh, black slavery, by a fellow named Granville Sharp. Ever heard of Granville Sharp? Some of you have. If you take a Greek course, and uh, one of the rules of grammar is called the G-sharp rule. G-sharp rule was Granville Sharp's rule, particular rule of grammar. But uh, Granville, uh, among other things, was very much interested in the, in the slavery issue. He was a contemporary of John Newton. And normally, when we think of John Newton, we think of the anti-slavery movement and so forth. Uh, and there are others involved with anti-slavery in England, too. But so was Granville Sharp. And I found a series of messages by Granville Sharp. And there are fantastic messages, uh, 1800s, actually uh, 1700s. And uh, it changed a lot of my thinking. Because when you deal with this, the issue of slavery and black slavery in the United States, you're really talking about many other issues of slavery. And just the issue of rights, rights in general. You bring in all the notions of rights. And... Uh, I can't help but think that uh, we as Westerners, Western Christians, have done the greatest disservice possible in the slavery issue uh, uh, to Africans, to, uh, to the black man, enslaving him. It's incredible, the stories uh, that we, the stories of, uh, you know, stealing the slaves and bringing them over to the United States or bringing them over to other countries and doing all kinds of things. Uh, it's incredible, but not just the black people, but also the Indians, too. Um, I guess I have a little penchant for uh, the American Indian uh, and what we did to him. Uh, Fourth of July was just last week. The movie on uh, WTBS, you know what WTBS is? That's the uh, Ted Turner's big universal TV station. And uh, the film that showed that night was about the Revolutionary War. Gary Cooper and how we killed the Indians and all I could think of was the 4th of July and we have a movie on how we killed the Indians and so forth uh, I guess I'm getting a little bit more turned off with that the idea that the uh, the cavalry was good and the Indians were always bad obviously we know that's not the case it's not the truth but it seems to be a good stereotype that we learned uh, grew up with and I think we've done a tremendous disservice to that and I think we have to start rectifying those uh, wrong and uh, defending the rights. If there's anyone that defends rights, it, it not only should be the Christian, it historically has been the Christian. It's been the Christians. Thank God for the Christians. Uh, whatever denomination, that have been the defenders of rights, of human rights, man's rights, real rights, not invented rights or, or uh, imaginary rights, but real rights. It's been the Church of Jesus Christ that's been at the forefront down through the millenniums of the defender of rights. As a matter of fact, Roger Williams, I'm not really a fan of Roger Williams, but uh, I don't mean the pianist Roger Williams. I mean the guy back in Massachusetts, Roger Williams. You know. <laughs> back in the 1640s. I like Roger Williams, the pianist, though. Uh, I complain about Roger Williams because I don't really agree with all his political philosophy. But, you know, one of the reasons why he get, got kicked out of Massachusetts and went down to start Rhode Island was because he did something which was treasonous. He attacked the Massachusetts Bay Colony's right or the king's right to grant a charter because he said wait a minute now this is not our territory and what does the king of England have what right does he have to simply say you know here's your property I mean maybe you can say that in England uh, and uh, bits of uh, France but he has no right to uh, simply grant a charter of land privileges in Massachusetts and so he challenged that in defense of the Indians as a matter of fact and they didn't like that and they kicked him out uh, when I first heard that, I thought, ah, propaganda. But, you know, the more I think about it, then he may, may have had some, uh, some argumentation there. So the whole issue of rights is real important. One thing you want to do in, in studying the issue of rights, human rights, civil rights, is read your Constitution. Read the United States Constitution. Thank God for the United States Constitution. I don't believe it's a Christian document, but it's got Christian principles in it. And we, ha we can use that document, even if it was, even if it was uh, overtly, overtly pagan Christians still can use that the Apostle Paul did use the Roman government he demanded his rights to be protected too uh, in an openly pagan government but read the Constitution you've read the Constitution lately read the Constitution it's got rights in there and it's got, it's got biblical principles in there it's got some unbiblical things in there but it's got some biblical things in there that we should be aware of 
that Christians ought to be aware of. You know, the First Amendment is extremely crucial, and that's the one everybody usually talks about. Anybody know the first line of the First Amendment? Come on, somebody does. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Then it goes on to talk about freedom of speech, assembly, and press. Uh, Historically, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion wasn't the first right. Uh, There were some other rights in there, but it was narrowed down to those basically four and five rights, and the freedom of religion was first. When we talk about the, the right of freedom of religion, Historically, we can go back to another famous charter called the Magna Charter, Magna Carter. Uh, remember the Magna Carta? Remember your history, English history? Very important, English history. Back in what year? Anybody know when that was? But I think, yeah. What was that again? It was at 1215. That's right. <laughs> it was in June, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it was uh, King John who didn't want to sign this thing. It was virtually coerced by the nobles to sign this charter. And you know who was one of the leading proponents of this charter for the nobles and their rights? It was a guy named uh, a Bishop Stephen... <coughs> forgot. Just lost his name. What was his name? Stephen, it'll come to me. Bishop of the church. Anyway, for your, um, since we've lost his last name, it'll come to me in a few minutes. Since we lost his last name, he was the one that divided the Bible up into chapters. Anyway, that was the bishop who divided the Bible up into chapters, which was the one that led the nobles. And he got in trouble with the Pope. Oh boy, he got in trouble with the king. He got in trouble with everybody. But he was a defender of rights. And... The, begin, the opening rights of the Magna Carta, the ending rights, the first paragraph and the last paragraph have to do with the rights of the Church of England to worship and rule as it pleases, apart from anybody else, any interference. Now, usually, again, in a secular society, when you hear about the Magna Carta, you don't hear about the fact that the opening statements of freedom in the Magna Carta has to do with the Church of Jesus Christ and their right to rule. But the Magna Carta is very important. Let's take a look at that verse again. What rights? We must obey God rather than man. Let me give you a working definition, too. It's good to have that. Working definition. Now, when you, in, in, in researching this whole issue of rights, you're going to come up with a variety of opinions about a definition. So that's why I call it a working definition. A working definition you can hone down and manipulate to a certain extent. But this is a definition that I've come up with, uh, which has to do with human rights. Those fundamental, fundamental duties and responsibilities. Fundamental duties and responsibilities and freedoms that belong to man as man created by God. That belong belong to man as man created by God. Not simply belong to man as such. Not simply belong to man as man, but belong to man as created by God. Now, this is kind of a, it's a working definition, and it's kind of a, a, a Christianized definition. So, when you deal with uh, human rights, you're also dealing with the issue of freedom. The freedom to do what you ought to do. The freedom to do what God tells you to do. The freedom to do what God doesn't forbid you to do, too. Freedom to do what God commands you to do. Freedom to do what God doesn't forbid you to do, too. We have those freedoms, too. Christians ought to fight for their rights. Now, everybody's fighting for their rights nowadays. Everybody's screaming for their rights. And you get tired of that after a while. Everybody's demanding their rights, John. Can I 
that down real simple for my people at the church today. Is that what that means is the right they have, the duty, the responsibility to obey the death law. Yes. Yeah. Okay. If you want, if you like it that way, that's fine too. Okay, we're going to get into that in a minute too. And Christians have to have rights too, and they've got to fight for their rights. You will lose your rights unless you fight for those rights. So I, I want to concentrate primarily on Christian rights, church rights, but more specifically Christian rights. You have rights too. When you look at this text, we must obey God rather than man. The world looks at that and says, now that's a dangerous text. That's dangerous. Because only crazy people say that. God told me. Oh, really? I'd like to see this one. Then. Uh, what upsets me about the current... Uh, jockeying for nomination for the presidency. It has to do with Pat Robertson. Um, I'm neither for or against Pat Robertson. I think he has a right to do what he wants to do and so forth. And uh, he's a brilliant fella. But what I object to is people complaining about Pat Robertson because would you want a man who was president who said, God told me to push the button? And of course, uh, what comes like, no, I don't want a man who says, God told me to push the button. And they do that every time. When, you, when a Christian, an avowed, open Christian runs, the first thing they want to go to is, he's going to push the button in a crazy way. You see, liberals don't do that. Nobody else does that. But only fundamental survival believers push the button in a crazy way. Now, would you want, the alternative is this. Would you want someone to be in the presidency who would push the button and didn't care what God had to say? You know, what's really the difference? After all, again... The Constitution of the United States, Article 6, protects Pat Robertson and says you cannot bring up religion as a test for office. So if you're going to complain about Pat Robertson because he's charismatic or because he's got God speaking in voices, all this kind of stuff, Article 6 says you can't bring it up, but they sure bring it up. You know Bill Gray, Congressman Gray, you know Bill Gray? He's head of the uh, uh, Finance Committee in Congress. He's a preacher. You didn't know he was a preacher, Baptist minister. I think he's a Baptist minister, but he's a preacher anyway, ordained. I've heard his testimony. Nobody ever says anything about Bill Gray. So what? It is the law of the United States. It is part of our uh, law here that, that you don't find in a lot of other countries that a minister can run for office. Stay a minister. Stay a preacher and still run for political office. That is legal. Uh, it wasn't so originally back in the 1700s, 1700, uh, 1600s as a matter of fact. Back in Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was illegal for the minister to run for a political office. He had, to, he had to quit the ministry in order to run for office. But down through the ages, it's taken about 200 years for all the states now. Finally, I think Kentucky or Tennessee was the last state just in the past uh, 15 years to finally grant the right to... Uh, of ministers, clergymen, to run for office. And he could be any religion he wants. Now, once again, that has advantages. It has its disadvantages, but it has its advantages. So we ought to look at the Constitution from, the, from a Christian perspective, realizing its defects, but also taking advantage of those things that God would have us in using the Constitution. We ought to obey God rather than man. You know, when we talk about rights, this is one right that we rarely talk about. This is one right that uh, is almost virtually ignored, and especially in our society. The first right, which is the premise to this text. Let me ask you a question. See if you're right. What is the most basic and fundamental right? Or, it may not, may not be the clearest question, but what is the most fundamental right, or who has the most fundamental right? Almost, almost. God has rights. That's first and foremost. Now, it seems to be a little bit absurd in our kind of a society, but it's God that has rights. God has rights. 
Put that out in front of your signboard in your church. Uh, we have a signboard out in front of our church, and usually what you have in a signboard is the uh, name of the church and the times of the services and so forth. And I thought, oh, how boring, you know. So we have that all down to the bottom line. So we put a message right there, and we did this one, God has rights, uh, and so forth. We, you'd be surprised. We were able to put uh, a, a variety of dialogues. What happened one time is I put on the, the signboard, a keeping God's commandments does not promote disease. Stay healthy for Christ's sake. <laughs> and, and that was in response to a, a news program that I was doing. And so I put that on the... And somebody answered me back in the mail slot. You know, Jesus was a homosexual. So I put back on the signboard. The answer to that, she responded with something else. You don't have love, you know, too much hatred. So I responded back to the signboard again. This happened over a month period. That got published in the newspaper. <laughs> the, whole theory, the whole dialogue got published in the newspapers. And so after that, we've been putting things up there. I haven't got a whole lot of response out of it. Usually people go by and say, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they're not going to respond with the uh, First Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You know, that's kind of a, who wants that? You know, most people are Greek Orthodox, so they come to our church like that. <laughs> God has rights now. We have to defend God's rights. Now, it's not as though God needs us to defend our, his rights. Of course not. He can defend his own rights. He's demanded us that we defend his rights. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we as faithful Calvinists that believe in the sovereignty of God, basically the word sovereignty has to do with rights. God has a right to do what he wants to do. And it's basic to Calvinism. It's basic to the, the scriptures, period. The story of Job is God has a right to do what he has. Now, there's a, there's a story about how Luther and Erasmus got into this. If you read Luther's book on bondage of the will, great book. And it's his discussion with Erasmus. Erasmus didn't like that idea. And so there's this little, uh, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but this uh, story about how that in the midst of the battle, Erasmus says, Luther, let God be right. And Luther said, let God be God. God's sovereign, which basically, and sovereignty technically isn't an attribute. You know, love, uh, righteousness, mercy, things are, are, we describe those as attributes. Omniscience, omnipresence as attributes. But sovereignty is more or less, more of a prerogative. Again, when you talk about prerogatives, you're talking about rights. God has rights. God has supreme rights. We have to defend God's rights. As a matter of fact, he is the only one that has inherent rights. God is the only one with inherent rights. God is the only one with inalienable rights. If we mean by inalienable, those which cannot be taken away by anybody. Now, of course, the Declaration of Independence talks about our inalienable or unalienable rights. And it's for sure, we have rights that no man can take away. The right to life, which no man as man can take away. Only God can do that. God can take away anything. But you see, we have no rights. Men have no rights in and of themselves. Again, that's when we get the message of the Reformed faith. You have no rights. Boy, that comes right against us. Because we want, we want to have those inherent rights, which God's got to abide by too. The right of freedom of the will. Boy, that's the right of rights which even God has to respect. Um, there's another good classic work along the area of rights, and it's The Rights of War and Peace by a Dutchman named Hugo Grotius. Hugh de Groot, Hugo Grotius. And he wrote this classic work in the 17th century on the rights of war and peace. And... Grotius is basically Arminian and you know, all this kind of stuff. But I read the book and it was fascinating. I kind of agreed with a lot he had to say. Because even with his Arminianism in the background, uh, he comes up with a lot of scriptural principles. Now, he doesn't want to base human rights and the rights of nations and the rights of war and peace, what God's Word has to say, because he just got through fighting what was called the, the Thirty Years' War, the wars of religion. Uh, apparently, you can't base rights on religion because people were fighting over that stuff. So you had to go to some more basic level, and that was natural law. Natural law, basically, for Grotius, it turned out to be the Ten Commandments. Thank God for that. 
But he didn't mean that. What he meant was that rights are right simply because they are right, simply because they are there. The Ten Commandments are right simply because they are, and not even God can change them. That's an opening line he has at the beginning of his book on the rights of war and peace. That the, command, the Ten Commandments are right because they are right, and not even God could change them. And our whole point is, wait a minute now, God has sovereign rights. He is the supreme one of rights. Wanda? Um, how does it Created by God. Yeah. Which presupposes this right, which we ignore when we talk about the issue of rights, because immediately we jump to this minority group's rights, or this majority group's rights. The majority has rights, and the minority has rights, too. Uh, I think one of the study questions, I'm not sure, does it talk about gay rights? The gays, do uh, homosexuals have rights? That's a good thing to talk about. Sure. They do have rights and human rights. They don't have special rights, but they have human rights. I mean, if there's anyone that would protect the rights of the homosexual, it would be the Christian more than anyone else, you see. Unless we really believe in this sovereignty of God, the whole issue of human rights is going to get out of, it's just going to go out the window. They'll chuck the whole thing. Human rights must be based upon God's rights, simply based upon what God has to say. Uh, <clears throat> the covenanters used the phrase, talk about the crown rights of King Jesus. The crown rights of King Jesus. And that's the same thing. The idea that Christ is the one who has the ultimate rights. And that's Matthew 28, 18. All what? Authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. That word authority is basically our word rights. All rights. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Christ has rights. Uh, <clears throat> between 1660 and 1688, uh, in uh, Scotland and England, uh, they were known as the killing times. The killing times for the covenanters. Uh, because the covenanters believed and this was their cry, for the covenant and the crown rights, for Christ and the crown rights. And they were teaching, advocating, and there were hundreds of them that died for the crown rights of Christ. They were defending the crown rights of Christ. You know, I wonder about whether we would do that. You know, we have a tough enough time getting out of bed to come to church, let alone, or putting the right foot out, the left foot out, just getting out. That may not be us, but you know people that are like that. And yet our, our historic reform fathers died uh, defending the rights of Christ. Now, of course, uh, this group of covenanters, they declared war on the king and excommunicated him. He didn't care. He was the Church of England anyway. Wow, would we ever do that? Do you have a question tonight? Okay. These rights, based upon the sovereignty of God, Without God being sovereign, human rights are gone. Teach the sovereignty of God. Turn to Exodus. Exodus. God tells Moses to go get the covenant people. Exodus chapter 3. You know the story. Exodus chapter 3. And uh, Moses says in verse 11, Exodus 3, 11, And Moses said unto God, I am who I am, that I should go... Who am I? I'm sorry. Moses says unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? That is simply, by what authority? Who am I? Verse 12. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be the sign unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? That is, by what authority? And God said unto Moses, This is the authority. I am. I am that I am. The sovereignty of God was the basis of authority. God commissioned 
Moses to go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a pagan. Pharaoh doesn't believe in the Bible. Pharaoh hasn't any conscience about God. He could care less even if he learned about God. But Moses is to go and stand before Pharaoh. I see that case of Moses before Pharaoh as the paradigm case for all of us. Now, for sure, we're not Moses. We're not exactly like Moses. But in a sense, we are to some extent like Moses in that Moses goes as the believer and he speaks to Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Well, wait a minute now. How can we talk to Pharaoh? I mean, why should you talk to Pharaoh like that? Pharaoh doesn't believe in God. So what if I say, well, the Bible says. Well, they don't believe in the Bible, so we've got to go to somewhere else. We've got to appeal to some other source. They don't believe in the Bible. Um... Didn't make any difference whether he believed in the Bible. He said he didn't believe in Jehovah. Who is Jehovah that I should listen to him? But the authority of Moses was based upon the sovereignty of God. I am have sent you. And that's the same commission that we have. That the I am has sent us into the world to challenge Pharaoh, the unbeliever. It's not civil government. Nothing wrong with civil government. I get a little bit tired of people pitting civil government versus the individual civil government the evil is not civil government it's evil civil government okay uh, some people think the civil government as such is evil it can't be anything else but evil but the problem is not civil government the problem is not the encroachment of civil government over individuals it's the sinfulness of civil government that we're fighting against okay and so here's Moses speaking and he speaks on the authority of God I am that I am speaks another case of uh, asserting of rights what do we talk about? It's better to obey God rather than man. Turn to Esther. Turn to Esther. Where's Esther? Uh, it's page 512 in my Bible, okay? <laughs> chapter 3, Esther chapter 3. Good old Esther. Here's a good one on rights, too. It's better to obey God rather than man. It's better to obey God's law. Hmm? Esther chapter 3. Look in verse 8. You know, that's expression like I opened up with. It's a dangerous expression for you people to advocate. It's better to obey God rather than man. Uh, it got these people into trouble. Esther chapter 3, verse 8. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from those of everybody else. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them, that is, to allow them to live. You see, in the Old Testament, the covenant people, even when they were scattered abroad, even when they were mixed in another community, they still had some character, some distinctiveness to them. And it's because they obeyed God's law. And it was dangerous to obey God's law. It was dangerous to advocate obedience to God's law. And it was profitable for the nation to exterminate these characters, to exterminate the covenant people. After all, you can't trust the guy who says, I ought to obey God rather than man. You can't trust the fellow who says, I'm going to obey the Bible. I'm going to put God's word first and foremost rather than man's word. You can't count on a guy like that. You want to work on the Lord's Day? You don't go to Joe Christian. Well, there is another... Joe Christian that I can go to and he'll work on the Lord's Day. I can count on him. He'll work seven days as a matter of fact. He doesn't care. Now there's a real Christian. That's what the world wants. The world would like a Christian like that. The world doesn't want a consistent Christian. The world loves an inconsistent Christian. But here's what it says. Their laws are diverse. God's laws are diverse. Neither keep they the king's laws. Well, it's a lie, of course. They do keep the king's law. I have to tell people, and when we talk about whether I should work on the Lord's Day, there, there's, this, there's exceptions to that. Without going through all the exceptions to that, basically, we have the fourth commandment. It teaches us to rest on the Lord's Day, uh, which rest is a different kind of work, as a matter of fact, than the previous work. And what if the boss says something else? What if the boss forces me? What will I say? 
Well, you tell them that you want that day off. You be nice about it. You pray about it. You don't you antagonize. You don't march in there like that with a stick. Uh, but you, you ask politely that uh, this is what you believe and this is what you want to do. As a matter of fact, I will give you better work in six days than you'll get out of me in seven days. It's guaranteed. Uh, there's a practical benefit to keeping the Lord's Day holy and not working. Uh, again, with exceptions in there and without going through that. You have a right to keep the Lord's Day holy. Uh, let me tell you about these two books. Um, John Stott, these are relatively new. John Stott came out with two volumes. This is volume one. Volume two has just come out on the involvement, being a responsible Christian in a non-Christian society. He deals with politics in this one. Politics, human rights, moral decay, protecting the environment. That's one that we usually forget. And economics. And the other book deals with feminism and uh, gay rights and other issues. Uh, I usually read everything that Stott writes. And again, you, know, you want to read it critically, but sympathetically. And I like, I, I, I like what he has to say in here. He is very historical in this one. He has a, done a lot of research. So you're not just getting um, uh, a, a lot of words, uh, heat with no light. You get a lot of information out of this, too. Uh, volume 1 and Volume 2, so that's a good one. Also... Uh, uh, Lynn Buzzard and Sam Erickson from the, uh, the, uh, the Christian Legal Society. Uh, this is his book, The Battle for Religious Liberty. I don't know whether this is still in print. I got it for 50 cents. <laughs> I think it cost $4,000. <laughs> uh, but it really is a well-diversified book. It deals with the Bible and your rights and brings up legal issues because uh, Sam, uh, as you know, is, a, is an attorney himself. So uh, this is also an excellent, well-rounded book. Uh, it's not from a Reformed perspective necessarily, but it still has some uh, good insights on uh, schooling, homeschooling, your rights as parents in that respect, uh, civil rights issues, and all kinds of rights, church rights, and, and cites cases. So I would recommend that one. You can look at that afterwards. A publisher of this one is probably their own. Well, David C. Cook does this one. And you know David C. Cook, so that's... That's the regular, and this is Ravel. This one's Ravel. God's rights. Let me go through some of these rights. Specifically dealing with uh, God's rights. Christian rights, that is. Let me give you some distinctives. Rights that Christians have. School teachers. Got any school teachers? And I'm talking about public school teachers. Public school teachers, Christian public school teachers, need a defense. Somebody must defend them. They're getting a bad rap in a lot of ways, too. I'm not opposed to the public schools. I don't think going to public school is sinful. I think if you can go to a Christian school, that's what you ought to do. If you ought to be able to establish a Christian school, I don't think public schools are sinful as such. Maybe a lot of sinful things and rotten things going on in some public schools, but I don't think we can simply characterize public schools as none of our business. Maybe that was a discussion question you had uh, yesterday. I think we ought to defend, uh, to a certain extent, the public schools. I don't think the, the state has a right to run the school, but it must protect the school. And, and, and uh, the pub, Christian public school teacher has the right to pray in school, in the classroom. Uh, again, uh, I, I have a, a stake in this. My brother's a public school teacher. Now, he's been teaching in Christian school as well as public schools. And after our experience uh, of about eight years ago, we counted our lawsuit. Dear Bob, he's about 6'4", 230 pounds. He'd love a fight. And he prays in class. He called me up a couple of weeks ago and said, is it okay if we pray? I mean, what are my legal rights? So I, I, uh, I gave him the name of an attorney, which he can talk to, so I can get his legal rights and constitutional rights. Get that worked out. Find out what that is. You can set that aside and simply say, wait a minute now, we ought to obey God rather than man. Whatever the Constitution has to say about that, whatever the, the nine men on the, on the court have to say about that, you, as a Christian public school teacher, have a right to pray. You don't have to ask your principal about it. Uh, if you want to, uh, remember to be discreet about it. That's true. But you have a right to pray, whatever the Supreme Court has to say about it. And no one has a right to say to you, you can't pray. And I don't mean praying privately. Uh, 
Legally, you have a private right to pray in public schools. This is talking about public prayer, uh, conducting the class in prayer. That's what the, the Constitution or the, uh, that particular constitutional fight was all about, the public administration of prayer. I don't know whether I would want the public school to administer a prayer anyway. They ought to administer a prayer, and it ought to be a Christian prayer in the name of Christ. Now, I grew up during a time, the 50s, when every morning I went to public school, as well as Christian school, but in public schools we opened up with prayer. We said the Lord's Prayer. And I remember back in the 50s, they, people bellyached back then too and complained and did all their conniptions back then as well. And for some reason, uh, some justices, we may have some future justices in this camp, <laughs> not in this room, I don't think, but uh, maybe in this room, uh, you have a right as a judge and a justice to uphold Christian prayer in public affairs, not just in public schools, but in, in anything. In Jesus' name. You have a right, Christian teacher, to teach creation science in your classroom. Uh, I also have that case, uh, the, just the recent case, uh, the last Supreme Court decision a few weeks ago, that says that teaching, banning the Louisiana law, which said you had to teach creation science. And the Supreme Court overturned that and so forth. Reading the editorials in San Francisco, they, they said this was the greatest victory for freedom and religious liberty and all this nonsense. It was a terrible thing. Whatever the court has to say, you have a right to teach creation science. Now, again, I'm not necessarily in agreement with everything that comes out of San Diego's creation science research program. I'm not necessarily in agreement with their philosophic presentation, but not only do they have a right, you have a right to present it from a Vantillian viewpoint if you want. Creation science. Uh, and if you get fired, so be it. Would that all the Christian te teachers in public schools got fired because of their maintaining God's rights. You have a right to read the Bible in the classroom. Now again, uh, your right, legally, your rights or the rights uh, uh, in the public school were not forbidding the reading of the Bible. You can read the Bible as history, literature, uh, joking, uh, whatever you want. You can read the Bible. You just can't read the Bible advocating the message of the Bible religious-wise. You can't advocate that in public schools so far as the court's concerned. But you as Christians have that right to read the Bible, to win people to Christ in your classroom. Uh, to look at a history course, a math course, a geography course in the light of God's Word. Uh, we mentioned this, I already mentioned this one. You have a right to keep the Lord's Day holy. You have a right to say to your boss, no, I won't work on the Lord's Day. You also have a right not to listen to blasphemy in the workplace. You have a right to sit in a place so you won't be bothered with smoke, right? Cigarette smoke. That's legal. And, and again, in San Francisco, that, I think that was a universal ordinance now. You can't have that anywhere. That uh, Not only do you have to provide a place for non-smokers, but uh, you, in private as well as public uh, facilities, restaurants especially. But you have a right not to listen to blasphemy at the office either. And you have a right to go to your boss and say, I won't put up with this. Now, again, when you say these things, you don't come across with the stitch brown. I mean, I do that because that's where I was born. <laughs> but you can say it with a pleasant face. I don't have a pleasant face, but other people may have a more pleasant face. Raleigh has a pleasant face, you know. He can say things to me, and I'll, I'll take it, you know. You have a right not to listen to oathing and cursing and swearing at your little cubicle in the, in the office. You have a right to assert that right. You run into that in the office? You have a right not to listen to dirty jokes at the lunch table, too. You have a right to be alone, and you may be alone in that, too. And thank God for that. You have a right not to listen to blasphemy on the radio or television, too. You can write into them. And it's not simply, hey, listen, man, if you don't like it, just switch the dial. Yes, you can switch the dial, too, but you can also write them. You can write the FCC about that, too. That they, that they don't have a right. See, we're getting back to what John had to say, too. Uh, the Bill of Rights for the Christian is the Ten Commandments. You have a right to uphold 
the Ten Commandments and seek that others uphold the Ten Commandments. Now, they're going to laugh at you for it. They have a legal right to laugh at you about it. You have a moral right not to laugh back. Uh, another thing, here's something else. Uh, secretaries, male or female secretaries, you have a right to disobey your boss if he asks you to lie for him. You really do. You have a right to say no to your boss if he asks you to lie, to, lie for him. You have a right to say no to your boss if he demands of you to do something contrary to God's word. Again, these are moral rights that you have. Maybe you knew about this, but no one really said it that way. Well, I'm saying it that way. You have the right to say, no, I won't work on that piece of litigation. I won't work on that project. I won't do that thing. I won't sing that song. I won't lead that thing. You have that right under God. And that's not being nasty. Uh, and don't think that when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he meant you have no rights. You have no rights. You've got to put up with all this nonsense. You've got to put up with all this blasphemy. He didn't mean that when he said that. We'll get into that on, on Friday, that particular text. Also, nurses, you have a right not to assist abortion. Uh, maybe in medical school. Again, I have a personal stake in this. My, my sister's a nurse. My twin sister have a right simply to say, I won't do an abortion. You have a right not to assist an abortion. You don't have to hold the pan at all. Uh, you don't have to hold the table or fix the stirrups or anything of the sort. You don't have to do that. You, don't, you have the right to refuse that. I have a friend of mine back in Maine uh, <clears throat> who delivers medical equipment. He delivers the suction pump to the abortion clinic. I said to him, you have a right to refuse to deliver it. Now, he delivers other things, good things, needful things. But you have a right also to say, I will not deliver that one. What would happen if more Christians in various avenues, you know, when you're talking about an abortion clinic, you're talking about a construction company as well. You're talking about surveyors. You're talking about uh, guards. You're talking about people that uh, oversee things. You're talking about glazers, people that take care of the window. You're talking about not only the construction of the grounds and so forth. You're talking about the equipment men. You're talking about the supply room and all that other thing. If all the Christians said, we won't assist in the abortion. I mean, they may not be standing in the room with the girl. They may have nothing to do with that directly. And they may oppose to it. If more Christians simply said, we won't even drop off the machine. You want the machine? You come and make it if you want it. I won't provide for it. I won't, I won't provide the gas for it. If more Christians did that, after a while the thing would either slow down or stop altogether. Uh, well, maybe people may have disagreement. That's okay. Uh, here's some other interesting things. Doctors, medical doctors, as well as dentists. You have a right to bring up the gospel to your patients. Uh, again, I brought this up before. I'm a little upset with... Uh, uh, with Coop, C. Everett Coop. And in, in his TV interview on 2020, Dr. Tim Johnson asked him about that uh, AIDS and the judgment of God. And he says, I don't have the luxury in my office to give an opinion about that. Uh, that upsets me terribly. He does not have the luxury to do otherwise. He's been called by God first and foremost. So I wrote him a letter. And this is the verse that has, has convicted me a lot. It says this, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then will relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house will perish. And who knows whether thou art not come to the nation for, uh, for such a time as this. Dr. Coop, you, you've been put in there by God and God's gracious providence for a time such as this. Then Esther bade them return answer unto Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast in like manner. And so I will go in unto the king, which is, a, which is not according to the Constitution. And if I perish, I perish. Now that was the last verse I wrote in Dr. Coop's letter, my letter to Dr. Coop. If he gets fired, then he gets fired. Yeah, but at least, at least, um, he is he's doing some good there. And yes, he is doing a lot of good. I mean, I can't think of a, a more qualified, I don't just mean medically, but as a Christian, more qualified. Uh, his testimony is uh, tremendous. I've heard his testimony. It's great. 
But I think at this particular point, he needs our prayers more than ever. It is so easy to get seduced by TV, by the spotlight. And when he came to San Francisco, he was adored by the gay community. They just wrapped his arms around him. And it's so easy just to let down the bars and say, all right, just for the sake of the praise of men. Uh, another verse I like that Christ said, beware when all men speak well of you. It's almost my motto, you know. <laughs> You're making a habit. That's right. Huh? We'll talk about that AIDS tomorrow. Thanks. George? Chuck, are you going to address the question of a Christian's rights either to not pay any taxes? You've got six billion people who constitute the tax revolt movement, many of whom are, at least some of whom are Christians, and then others who only pay partial taxes, withholding monies that they believe are, are going to support evil causes. Yeah, you haven't got a legal right to do that, but I think you have a moral right to do that. And, and I, you make those distinctions, legal right and a moral right, just so you know, when you go to jail, you're going to jail. And don't, you know, don't kick and thrash when you go into the prison or jail. Now, in our, in our demonstrating, in our picketing, uh, so I didn't answer all your questions, I understand that. But, and it is a tough question about withholding something for, you know, it's going to go to Nicaragua if you don't want it to, or go to uh, Nebraska if you don't want it to, or going to an abortion clinic and you don't want it to. You start withholding that stuff, you're going to get into trouble. Get ready for getting into trouble. That's okay to get into trouble. You have your right to get into trouble. And there are Christian, constitu Christian constitutional attorneys that will protect your rights as best they can. But you may have to spend a few days, years, in, in prison for that. Uh, yeah, Jay. Uh, how would you distinguish between a Christian's rights and a Christian's responsibilities in the areas you can talk about? Uh, I use the word rights in a more generic sense. Part of that right is responsibilities. We have responsibilities. Uh, we also have things that aren't necessarily responsibilities, but freedoms to take care of. So I'm using the word right in a more generic sense, a general sense, with responsibilities as a subpoint under that. We have responsibilities based upon what God commands us to do. We have the right to do those things. But we have rights to do things that God has not commanded us to do. Okay? I don't have to go to a Presbyterian church. I don't have to go to a Baptist church. And the government doesn't have any right to demand of that of me. And the government has no right to demand of the church not to discipline members. I must discipline certain members as a, as a pastor. There is a right that is demanded of God's word, but I also have rights that God doesn't demand of me. It's called freedoms that I have. I have a freedom to train up my children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The state can't say otherwise. All the way in the back. You can say, I don't like it, and you can, you can demonstrate that in a very physical way, too. Not simply because of the nature of the, of the country and the government that we live under, and thank God for that. Uh, but, you know, when, when Paul said in Romans chapter 13 that God appointed the magistrate, uh, we ought to be subject to the higher powers. He didn't say, you can be subject to the higher powers, except the higher powers don't have to be subject to anybody. The higher powers don't have to be subject to God. When Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God, he didn't say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But Caesar doesn't have to render unto God. Well, Caesar is a responsibility to God too. And it's not as though simply because God puts them in office and they have a right to be in office and they've been put in rightfully so, not by assassination or something, and they pass those laws, we don't just simply conclude, well, they're in God, uh, God and his providence has put them there, I guess we'll just go along and do what they say or kind of rubber stamp that. No, we also have a, a, an individual accountability. I'm going to stand before God myself personally and have to give an account for why I voted for the way I did or didn't vote when I should have. Yes.
I say, by and large, yes. Understanding the problem that you ought to seek to change that law, and there's a legal process that we have in our country that we can do things like that. But sometimes the legal process, especially in changing certain laws, takes a whole generation. It's sometimes too long. You know, uh, we always go back in, in the right to life moment, we always go back to the Nazi Germany issue. Uh, knowing what was, if you knew what was going on in a concentration camp, would you simply try to change the laws? Well, you would try to do that too. You'd get killed in the process, but you'd also do something else about it, right? And more immediately. Well, let me finish this up. Let me finish one more. Pastors! There we go. Pastors, you have a right not to worry about your IRS, IRS exemptions for your churches. You have a right not to worry about that. Because that really is one of the first things that hits you. What about our exempt status? <gasps> what are we going to do? And there are a lot of pastors that won't say or do anything, politically or socially. Now, politically, the pastor in the pulpit can advocate political programs, and he can uh, spend up to 20, technically, 20% of his time. That's a lot of time. Uh, on political issues. Uh, they... The government doesn't really like to take on churches. They do take on churches, and when they do, boy, they get advertised all over the place. And, and because we hear a lot about that, because we, it is advertised a lot when a church is sued, uh, they don't like that. The government would rather not. Attorneys don't want to get publicity, normally. The job of the attorney is to get you out of trouble. He's not necessarily interested in staying in the trouble, unless it's a good cause. But pastors, you don't have to worry about what the IRS has to say. And, and sub-point to that, if you as a church don't want to be incorporated, you don't have to be incorporated as a church. There's nothing that says that churches have to be incorporated. Okay? Sub-point to that, or the, re the reciprocal to that. If you as a church or a group of people want to become incorporated, you can. You have the right to become incorporated. Again, a moral right to become incorporated. Now, some Christians that say, no, we shouldn't get incorporated at all. We're just kowtowing to the state. I disagree with that. I think we can call upon the state to bring protection. Now, you don't always need an incorporation status to have protection of the state. Understand that. But you can use it. In our case, it came in handy. God protected us. And that's not just being pragmatic about it. I think that's being bib biblical about it. But pastors, you don't have to morally, biblically, worry about your status. You have to preach God's word first and foremost. And you can tell people how to vote. Voting is an act of faith. Voting is a confession of faith. You don't have to vote either if you don't want to vote. It's, uh, voting is not a right. It's a privilege. It's not a right, but it is a privilege to do. And you don't have to do it, but you can do it. There's more that can get involved with that. We have a question? Yeah. Bob? The last time we filled out papers for the corporation they have now of getting to be a longer list of sentences. They say that you cannot support publicly in terms of legislation. So if you got into that at all, you speak to that succinctly. I haven't seen the... Yeah, I haven't seen the, the definitive list on that. I just give it to my treasurer, you know, and, and uh, we sign it because of our incorporation status. But ultimately, no matter what it would say, whatever God's Word has to say, we've got to preach against and for. We've got to do that. So really, when you do look at the list and it says, well, you can't spend so much money here and you can't do this and that, uh, we have to follow God's words. You know, got to obey God rather than and man. The question is, is, can you stay under that corporate structure? In some cases, no. Right. In some cases, no. Yeah. Uh, you may not be able to stay under that. If you don't stand it, you're going, you're going to get into a lot of hot water. Uh, to, to lose your status or to, uh, or to give up your incorporation status, is going to, you're going to have to get a lawyer for that. The, the question you triggered on was, was preaching about legislation. That's yeah. Uh, obviously, we would say, and you would agree, that we have a right to preach on specific legislation if it deals with God's word. I disagree with simply preaching about legislation, just po political preaching. We're preaching God's word and how it fits into absolutely every area of life. And it happens to be, if it happens to be a political issue before the legislature, fine. We'll have to preach against it or for it. You can tell your people how to vote on it if that's what the God's word directs you on. Uh, I want to end with this one. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's end with this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
and then I'll be done. Uh, again, there's more that could be said about this, and I think it's a fascinating subject. I think we need to train a lot of our Christian lawyers that they have rights and what Christian rights are. I have another whole message on you have a rights as church members, as a matter of fact. Within, the, within your congregation, you have rights, too. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this first section here, the first seven or eight verses, has to do with uh, a conflict in the church. Brother against brother, uh, suing each other, and that before unbelievers. Incredible. And it wasn't so much that they were suing each other at first, it was that they were doing it in front of the world. Haven't you got any wise men? Haven't you got any elders in there that can judge those situations? If the church disciplined its members more seriously than we are, and I think the OPC does a, good, a relatively good job at that, if we did, we could handle a lot of cases that are in the courts right now. If the, if the Church of Jesus Christ asserted its authority even more so in litigating between uh, erring brothers. But the final message is verse 7. Nay, already it is a defect in you that you have lawsuits one another. There's nothing wrong with lawsuits as such. There's nothing wrong with brothers going to brothers and that before a believer in lawsuits. He's, he's a little more pointed than that. Why not rather take wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, Christians, you don't have to defend your rights. In a real sense, you don't have to defend your rights. Now, what I mean by that is you don't have to defend your personal rights. I have a responsibility to defend his rights, Lynn's rights. As a Christian brother, I have a responsibility to defend his rights. But there's a case if I'm, if, if I'm offended, if someone offends me, I have a right not to assert my right too. Why not rather be defrauded? And just simply, you can forget that. There are certain things that we can forget. Certain brothers you ought to take to court because they're not acting right. True. But there are certain cases when he says here, and when to know that, it takes spiritual discernment for that. But you have a right not to defend yourself. And that's why Psalm 43 was written. You know Psalm 43 at least. I know the first line of Psalm 43. It opens up with, Defend me, judge me, O God, and plead my cause. Ultimately, the Christian has the best defense because he's got the sovereignty of God on his side. It's God that defends your rights. Okay, so your congressman's not going to defend your rights and your senator's not going to defend you and the judge is not going to defend your rights, right? Nobody's going to defend your rights. You do have one who does defend, defend your rights. Jesus talked about it. How shall not God defend the rights of his elect who pray unto him night and day? He will defend us swiftly and surely. Absolutely. You know, a newsman asked me a few years ago when we were in the midst of our lawsuit. He said, uh, Do you realize you've taken on the gay community? Do you realize what that means? And I said, Do you realize they've taken on the church of Jesus Christ? And now look what's going on. Anyone that brings despite or mockery to the church of Jesus Christ pays the ultimate price of death. And it's incredible. And uh, I weep for those guys. They're my age. Uh, they're all 35 to 45 years old. They're friends. Some of them are friends that are dying of this stuff. And it's the judgment of God uh, for slighting the church of Jesus Christ, among other things. Well, uh, let's, yes? Before you, this distinction between a right and obligation, a concrete situation. Here's uh, a young man whose employer keeps him working Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Uh, he certainly has the right to go to that employer and say, I'm a Christian and I believe in worship and I want some time off. Now, what if because of kind of general weakness, he is unwilling to go to the employer and make that request, and this continues. Now, he has a right to do that, but it seems to me that we've got to discuss this question of obligation, and it just continues over an you know, extended period of time. Isn't the church, the church has the right, yes, to discipline him, but does the church have the obligation to discipline him? That's where it really gets, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's a good question. We ought to make that a discussion question. That's right. I don't, want to, I don't want to give my answer at this point. You know, that, that's such a good issue to deal with. Yeah. 
and, 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 and what I was thinking, and what I was thinking in re- reference to that is, so you have a weak Christian who's just become a Christian, and he, but he's convicted about working on the Lord's Day at McDonald's and all this other stuff. But you know, he just doesn't have the gumption. Should the session write the boss in defense of the member? Interesting situation. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the crown rights of King Jesus. They are not by vote. And he has simply asserted them because he is the creator of us and creator of our rights. And men have dignity, men and women. Righteous or wicked have rights and dignity because they are made in the image of God. And Lord, as Christians, may we maintain those rights and fight for those godly principles and the demands of God's law on ourselves, our family, our household, even our society, whether it's a pagan society or not. We live by God's law. And if we, if we bring infringement on those laws, we will be destroyed by those very laws. And help us, Lord, to defend the rights of others, so many others, whether nations, other countries, but even within our own country, even within our own community, who have rights being infringed upon. And we have the responsibility. We don't have the right to ignore them and walk on the other side. And help us to defend the rights of the poor. For Christ's sake, in his name, amen. Okay, now you can argue all this out. Uh, John, did your discussion group meet out there before? And it's watering the lawn there now.